You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for January 2018. I hope you had a chance to listen to December's program and hear the top story choices from the TCTMD news team. The rest of the year, their voices and opinions tend to get edited out of the audio clips on this podcast. December is the only month where you really get to hear them speak their minds. January, of course, is a time for looking ahead and setting goals. I figure that's not a bad theme for Heart Sounds this month. I have a number of resolutions for making TCTMD news better than ever in 2018. Some of the audio clips from the stories this month fit neatly into my plans. Let's get started. First things first, one of my goals for TCTMD this year is more meeting coverage. I don't mean just writing up the news from international meetings, but actually having reporters there, on the ground, and getting a feel for which way the cardiology winds are blowing. That may mean meeting you, dear listener, in person. I hope so. Todd Neal kicked things off for us this month when he attended the International Stroke Congress in Los Angeles. Todd covered a number of important trials and topics at ISC, including the latest on acute stroke interventions, plus the evolving role, and safety, of different NOACs. His first story, however, recapped the hot off the presses updates to the AHA-ASA guideline for the treatment of acute ischemic stroke. These new recommendations extend the time window for mechanical thrombectomy in these patients out to 24 hours. That's up from six hours in the previous 2015 guidance. To make this shift, the writing committee took into account results from the DAWN trial, presented at the European Stroke Organization conference last year, but also the DIFFUSE 3 trial, presented just hours earlier at ISC 2018. Diffuse 3 showed that the addition of thrombectomy to standard medical therapy improves functional outcomes even in patients presenting later following the onset of their symptoms. Also in the guideline, a new recommendation makes it clear that some types of imaging, CT perfusion, diffusion-weighted MRI or MRI perfusion, is required to select patients with salvageable brain tissue for treatment in the 6-24 to hour window. Find Todd's coverage of the new guideline, as well as full results from Dawn and Diffuse 3 on TCTMD. For now, have a listen to part of Todd's conversation with Peter Panagos from Washington University in St. Louis, following a press conference at ISC. I think uh, the quality of evidence from these two trials together, uh, separately and additive, of kind of open up an opportunity for a new group of patients that historically we've excluded from treatment. Um, so I think they offer they offer a tremendous opportunity for for these for this patient population. Still doesn't change the overall view and tenet of stroke care that early care is better care, um, and this only really kind of. Um, covers a very select group of patients on the entire spectrum of stroke patients. So I don't want that message to get lost in this announcement. This is very excited, but still most patients are ineligible for these treatments. Um, It's up to now pre-hospital providers and emergency physicians and stroke teams in collaboration with their with their experts and cons- consultants together to translate this data into local practice um, so we don't exclude some patients and we don't overscreen too many patients and, and overwhelm our, our hospitals and systems. So this is very, um, you know, I don't think we're currently prepared f- for this science to hit the street at this point, but also on the other hand, um, we welcome this news and now the challenge is, is, is ours to go and, and translate this science and these guidelines into practice back in our communities.
Another goal of mine for TCTMD in 2018 is to keep broadening our scope beyond interventional cardiology. Don't worry, we'll still be bringing you all the interventional news your heart desires, but we'll also be sure to keep you up to date on the other important issues affecting your patients and your practice. To that end, TCTMD's Michael Reardon did a story this month looking at the long-term cardiometabolic effects of bariatric surgery on adults with poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. I did some digging around to get some idea of the numbers here. In the U.S. alone, more than 29 million American adults have diabetes and another 86 million have prediabetes. Bariatric surgery, meanwhile, is also on the rise. 216,000 procedures were performed in 2016. That's up from 158,000 in 2011. Bariatric surgery has previously been shown to produce striking improvements in blood glucose, lipid, and blood pressure levels immediately after the procedure. A new paper by Charles Billington and colleagues published in a special issue of JAMA this month looked at longer-term outcomes in the diabetes surgery study. Back at the one-year mark, half the patients randomized to gastric bypass surgery had achieved target reductions in HbA1c, LDL cholesterol, and systolic blood pressure. By five years, however, just 23% were still meeting this triple endpoint. Mike spoke with Carl LaRue, who pointed out that the hope has long been that gastric bypass might actually put diabetes into remission. Findings like those from Billington and colleagues in JAMA this month are dimming those hopes. Here's part of what LaRue told Mike. I think now that we have this information, what we are also seeing is that surgery is incredibly good at controlling the disease, but it's probably not putting the disease in remission on its own. So now the thinking has changed that we would think of type 2 diabetes a little bit in the same way as we, thought we now think about cancer. So if you have cancer, what we would do is we would use surgery to control the disease, you know, and even put the disease in remission, but then to actually make somebody live much longer, what we have to do is we combine pharmacotherapy with surgery. So the thinking is now, you know, in the same way as if you have, somebody has breast cancer, you would cut the tumor out, but then you would place the patient on chemo or radiotherapy in the long term. At least, you know, you would give them medication in the long term. So, So what we are seeing is the natural history of the disease, that surgery can put diabetes in remission for a while, but then what we see is an inevitable creeping up of the the lipids. Um, We see it with blood pressure, we see it with glycemia. And, And what this really tells us now is that that's not surgery failing, you know, it is actually just surgery controlling the disease, um, but on its own it's not good enough. Okay, time for TCTMD resolution number three. This one, as I've already said, is to make sure we continue to bring you the bread and butter news you can use. This month, Caitlin Cox wrote a story looking at how to treat patients who have angina and signs of ischemia on stress testing, but no evidence of obstructive coronary artery disease. This isn't a small problem for cardiologists. Ischemia on stress testing with no obstructive coronary artery disease, known as ENOCA, is actually found in half of women and one-third of men who present with angina and are referred for angiography. Michelle Graham is the senior author on a review paper looking at ENOCA, published in the American Journal of Cardiology this month. She put the problem in perspective for Caitlin. This is actually kind of a tough group of patients because some patients with chest pain and non and 
no obstructive epicardial coronary artery disease have non-cardiac chest pain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we see lots of people with non-cardiac chest pain. Um, some of the, but some patients who have n- essentially normal epicardial coronary arteries, chest pain, and evidence of ischemia mm-hmm. on non-invasive testing, um, they have to have that evidence of ischemia a bit, um, have um, this inoka, right? So uh, ischemia with no obstructive yeah, coronary. Yeah. So a lot. So sometimes, so depending on on you know who who's looking after them, that sort of stuff. Sometimes some of these patients with anoka are patted on the head and told there's nothing wrong with them, mm-hmm. and treated as if they're non-cardiac chest pain, um, when in fact they actually have anoka. Yeah. Um, but e- equally, you don't want people with non-cardiac chest pain being treated with a bunch of cardiac meds. After combing through 35 trials, Graham and colleagues concluded that some beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and ACE inhibitors alone or in combination with a statin, all showed signs of improving quality of life in ANOCA patients. Some of these agents, but not all, also seemed to help with angina. Other drugs had no such benefit and very few studies assessed safety. Search ANOCA on TCTMD to find Caitlin's story and to get the full scoop on what works, what doesn't, and the randomized trial in the works that may provide some answers. All right, last but not least, here's one of my most important resolutions for TCTMD this year. More in-depth feature stories. We brought you plenty of interesting features last year. Hopefully by now you know to check out the in-depth box under the news tab on TCTMD to find all these important stories. My aim for 2018 is to continue to bring you the deep dives into issues and themes already making headline news, but also stories tackling some outside-the-box topics that might make you think differently about how you practice or how others practice in different parts of the world. DCTMD's Yael Maxwell cranked out two feature stories this past month, one that falls into the second category, while the other very much picked up on headline news. The first was a profile of physicians who've been volunteering overseas to treat Syrian refugees living in camps in Jordan. These cardiologists and others are participating in medical missions run by the nonprofit Syrian American Medical Society, or SAMS. You're likely thinking, as I did, that cardiovascular disease can't be the most pressing medical problem for the hundreds of thousands of people displaced in this entrenched civil war. But as physicians told Yael, it's precisely because cardiovascular symptoms get ignored or overlooked that problems become more dire. I hope you'll have a read of Yael's feature to get a sense of the kind of cardiac problems physician volunteers are seeing and the lengths they're going to in order to get around some formidable barriers to care. Here to pique your interest is Zaki Lababidi of Gilbert Cardiology in Arizona talking about why he's helping out with SAMS. It's a sense of responsibility. I'm blessed uh, to leave Syria when the turmoil was not even that bad, to come to this country and blessed to really have a great opportunity uh, to pursue my career and my personal life. And we see it as an opportunity to give back to the people uh, of Syria and other people Uh, who are in great need. And um, it's a sense of responsibility along with a sense of humanitarian work that uh, as a physician, you you always think about that this is why you um, went into medical school uh, to begin with. Most of the time is your dreams of doing humanitarian work and helping people 
Um, and now you have the opportunity to, to do just that. It's a very pure relationship of um, providing patients in, in dire need with, um, with, uh, with the treatment they need and, and there's nothing else. The second feature story Yael pulled together this past month addressed a thorny issue very much in the public eye. We asked, as the Me Too movement builds, how big of a problem is sexual harassment in the cardiology profession? Yael spoke to a range of people about this topic, including early career cardiologists who described some of their experiences. I hope you'll read Yael's feature to hear their stories. For now, let me play you two clips that offer some perspective on what's been hashtagged as Me Too medicine. For both of these clips, Yael has just asked, is sexual harassment an issue in cardiology? First, you'll get a response from Thomas Varghese Jr. from the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Directly after, you'll get an answer from ACC President Minnow Walsh of St. Vincent Heart Center in Indianapolis. In her clip, Walsh explains just why speaking out is hard, particularly for people early in their medical careers. This is kind of a call to action for all organizations, all institutions, all specialties, that we need to make sure that uh, we have uh, reporting mechanisms in place that allow people to come forward, you know, that we can help them in a time of need, that they're able to uh, report whatever happens uh, in an environment that's very transparent and without a fear of retribution. Um, those are the things that we need to do. But uh, the honest answer is I'm not, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Is it just because there are less of those stories or is it just people are fearful? I, I'm not sure. I think only time will tell. Um, there may be people who, um, you know, want to come forward and say things, but they, they still want to maintain uh, anonymity, and, and that's fine. Medicine is a very hierarchical profession, especially during training. So um, all, you know, trainees report up from, you know, medical student to resident, resident to fellow, fellow to attending, um, and the hierarchy continues, especially in the university setting. So there is, unlike some professions, upsetting the apple cart in any way as a junior person is risky because of the consequences downstream, which might include lack of promotion and or not receiving support in the job market later. So this is true in other professions, obviously, but I do think the hierarchical nature of medical training uh, contributes to this somewhat. That is all we have for the January New Year's Resolutions edition of Heart Sounds. Before we leave the topic of features altogether, let me say that while you didn't hear anything from Laura McEwen on the podcast this month, there's a good reason for that. In recent weeks, Laura has been busy conducting interviews for a feature story of her own. We'll bring you some audio for that feature towards the end of February. And on the more meetings front, Caitlin Cox will be on the ground at the ICET meeting in Florida this weekend. Be sure to watch for ICET news starting Monday morning. Of course, you'll want to check out tctmd.com for all your daily news, features, slides, and video. Don't forget, we have two other great podcasts to tide you over between heart sounds. These are Talking Points with Michael Gibson and TCT Radio, the roundtable discussions recorded live at the annual TCT meeting. One of our three podcasts takes to the airwaves each Wednesday. 
Find all of these under podcasts on tctmd.com or search for TCTMD on iTunes or Google Play. Until next time, thanks for listening.